Well, COVID life um, has, has changed things, and I think all of us wonder what the new norm will look like, and we're all hoping that it's going to be really, really soon. It doesn't feel like it's going to be, but, uh, but we wonder, at least I wonder, what, what's life going to be like whenever we kind of get to whatever the new norm will be? Um, some people speculate that the handshake is, uh, is kind of gone, that, that most of us won't do that again. And I know there's some that have never stopped shaking hands, good for you. Um, others, uh, maybe the rest of us, like we, we've at least had less handshakes. Um, certainly work has changed. I think every industry work has changed in some way. Um, uh, office spaces are not used like they were with so many people uh, telecommuting now. And while many businesses fought that for years, uh, uh, there's some chatter that, that a lot of businesses are figuring out, hey, this might not be so bad for us. Um, so who knows what it will look like e even a year or two years from now. And certainly we can ask questions about uh, the church as well and, and what, how has this impacted the church. Um, our first Sunday when we uh, decided to shut down, uh, I think it was a Friday, we didn't have anything that Sunday. We weren't ready for it. The next week uh, we had a sermon. I stood right here to a room of like two people that were helping record me, and then we, we put that out for our people. And then I think the next week, maybe we added music, and uh, we did that for a couple months, and then we got to finally meet outside together. Um, but, but the church... Uh, the church has been impacted by this, and, and I think a lot of people um, are rightly thinking, well, what is, what is the church really? And, and what's scary is if, if, we just, uh, if we just think about what I want the church to be. Um, but what we need to do is, is look biblically at what God says his church is. Right? One of the things that we'll hear about today is the church is described as the bride of Christ. And if we're to be Christ's bride, we should know what he says about his bride. So we want scripture to, to uh, change how we think about church, not just let culture or our own preferences uh, decide what we think about church. We want scripture to change, change how we think about the church so that then we can live out um, being God's church. So Matt Q is going to preach. I'm actually going to pray for him as he comes up here, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have plenty to say about the church, more obviously than we can talk about today, more than we can talk about even over these ne next several weeks as we think about what the church is. Um, God, we, we pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds so that we can respond rightly to your word, uh, so that we uh, can be your people um, gathered together uh, doing what you've, you've told us to do as your bride. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. I'm glad to see you, and I'm excited for this new series that Greg introduced as we talk about the church. He introduced this question, and I want to repeat it again. What is the church? I think that if you were to ask this question to most non-believers, they might immediately think of a building. It's a building where Christians go to worship and do whatever it is that Christians do. Maybe some non-believers would associate it with a particular denomination or group like the Presbyterian Church or the Catholic Church. Maybe they would think of the church as a particular congregation of people in their town or whatever. But most people, I think if you ask them, what is the church, they would just give you a blank stare and wouldn't really know how to answer. 
Sadly, I don't know that the situation would be much different if you ask this question to the majority of professing Christians in our country. I think that most Christians probably wouldn't feel comfortable defining the church, even though they might feel like they're able to point it out when they see it. In recent decades, evangelicals have devoted very little time to thinking carefully about the topic of the church. The study of the church, it's called ecclesiology, has largely been ignored. But not only have evangelicals failed to think biblically about the topic, it has even become common for supposed Christians to openly confess their disdain for the church. Yeah, sure, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, as the saying goes. One scholar, Michael Byrd, offers a penetrating analysis of the modern Christian status quo. He writes, The sad fact is that evangelicals have traditionally been ecclesiology light. Evangelicalism's neglect of the doctrine of the church is often because of its tendency towards hyper-individualism with evangelicals regarding church as a weekly meeting of Jesus' Facebook friends. Or else the church is treated as a business uh, business, uh, delivering some spiritual products and religious services for consumers who just want to get in and out. Or even worse, the church is just the cheerleader for a particular kind of civil religion or sociopolitical project. It should not be this way. The church is not merely an optional supplement for Christians to pick and choose if they actually want to be a part of it. In the Christian life, all of our beliefs take shape through the realm of our doctrine of the church, our ecclesiology. Our understanding of the church is actually one of the most visible pieces of our Christian beliefs. A right understanding of the church is integral to the content of the gospel itself, because the church is not simply a dispensable accessory in God's saving work. No, it lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God in this world. It's not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. No, the church is one of the supreme expressions of divine wisdom and glory. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser goes so far as to say There can be no complete doctrine of God without mention of the church. For this reason, it is crucial that we develop a holistic and accurate understanding of the church. So in the coming weeks, that's what we're going to be attempting to do. We're going to be asking a series of questions over the course of six sermons, and it's all going to be related to the topic of the church. They're going to build on one another, and you can see the topics here. We're going to ask first today... What is the essence of the church? We'll move on to what is the purpose of the church? And then what are the marks of a biblical and gospel-centered church? What's it supposed to look like? What is the purpose of the weekly gathering? Why is it that we do what we're doing right now? And then finally, what is the role of individual Christians within the local church? Why should a believer be a part of a church? What's their responsibility to it? We'll find, hopefully, a lot of things about the church uh, in this series, but I I think a couple things that I I hope at least we realize is that, first off, the Bible has a lot to say about the church. And second, 
I hope that we discover that this topic is immensely practical. It has a major impact on the way that we live as Christians, and so it's worth thinking about carefully. As we tackle this question, we need to begin by identifying the essence of the church. What is the church? What I mean by essence is, what is the intrinsic nature or indispensable qualities of the church that determine its character? What are the essential conditions, the elements that, were they to be absent, you would no longer have a church? In other words, what is it that makes the church the church? Though it might appear rather inconspicuous, this question is actually very foundational to what we're doing in this series. And as Greg mentioned, for our lives right now as Christians in the midst of a global pandemic in a time where we have technology and opportunities that have not existed before in the history of church, we're asking questions about the nature of the church that we've never had to question before. What do we do when the government won't allow us to meet, but we can record things on video? Is that a replacement for church? Is that fine? Should we just do that? Or um, is there something about gathering in person that is important for God's plan? These are questions that we'll be covering in the upcoming weeks. But as we'll see, what we're talking about today with, with the essence of the church is foundational for all these other questions. We talked about this as we just went through the book of 1 Peter. We saw all the way throughout as Peter describes the people of God and also exhorts them to do things, their doing flows from their being. He doesn't tell them to do things before telling them about their identity in Christ. And so for the church, in order to fulfill our purpose, in order to actually carry out the things that God wants us to do, we must first start with who we are, what is our identity, what is the being of the church, and this leads to the doing. As we seek to answer this question, we're going to do so in two parts. So this will be the first sermon in this series on the essence of the church. And next week we'll cover the same topic, but in, in a bit of a different way. So the reason we're doing this is because the New Testament actually talks about the church in two different ways. Does this... Uh, in several different places, but a great example is in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul begins his letter. He sends, uh, sends it to, he says, the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So first we see here Paul addresses this letter to a specific congregation. It's a group of Christians within a specific location, the church of God that is in Corinth. After this, though, he adds that he's writing to those who are called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has, not, he has in mind not only the Corinthian church, but also believers all over the world in every place, he says. So when it comes to the word church, Scripture can use it in a couple of different ways. 
can be referencing either a specific congregation of believers within a particular locale, or it can be using it to refer to the totality of God's people throughout the world. We refer to the former as the local church and the latter as the universal church. Another helpful way to maybe think about this is the local church is like the little C church and the universal church is like the big C church. So as we address this topic of what is the church, well, which church are we talking about? This first summer, we're going to look at the universal church. This is the community of God's people at the broadest level. We're going to be asking, what is the universal church? And then next week, we'll move into, well, what is the local church, the individual manifestations of the universal church? On a whole, this series will focus on the second of those two. It'll focus on the local church. We're going to be talking specifically about the way that we function as a church and how the Bible calls a particular congregations to function. But before we get there, we really need to start with the universal church because this is the entirety of God's people. It is from the, the essence from which the local church flows. And so we'll begin here, but we, we really could try and answer this question a whole number of ways. If we were to ask, well, what is the essence of the church? We could start in the Old Testament, walk through the entire Hebrew scriptures and, and see what it says about the people of God and how that continues into the New Testament. We could um, just pull a bunch of different verses from all over the place. Uh, obviously, we're a bit limited in one sermon, and so I thought one thing that might be helpful for us to do is to see what one particular book has to say about the church. So we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians and observing what it tells us about this church. Like most of the apostolic letters in Scripture, the book of Ephesians has very little to say to the individual. At no point in the book are any of its teachings directed to the singular reader. Instead, its scope is on an entire community. In fact, this book is actually unique among Paul's writings because Paul tends to use the word church in reference to the local church individual gatherings of believers that he writes his letters to and that he seeks to guide and teach and instruct. In the book of Ephesians, though, he only uses the term to refer to the universal church, the entirety of the people of God. It's the collection of Christians throughout the world of all time in all places, and thus it's actually helpful for us because we, if we are in Christ, are a part of this universal church. So with that, let's dive into Ephesians, and we'll try to look closely at the portrait which the Apostle Paul paints for us of the universal church. The book tells us many things about the essence and nature of the church. We could identify a whole list, but I thought it would be helpful to try and boil that down to four key elements of the book's teaching on the church. We're going to be looking at these four key truths and what it tells us about the Christian community. So first and foremost, Ephesians teaches us that the church is a creation of the triune God. This is one of the key contributions that the letter makes to our understanding of the church. 
we learn that at its core, the church is a creation of the triune God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Everything that this letter goes on to teach us about the church makes no sense apart from the activity of the God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul communicates this right off the bat in his opening prayer, beginning in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in his abundant grace, God the Father has initiated the entirety of our salvation. In doing so, he has blessed us in immeasurable ways. The following verses illustrate the ways in which he's done so. God has blessed us by choosing us, by predestining us, by adopting us and gracing us and redeeming us as his people. All of this work has been done in Christ. The opening prayer here highlights the redeeming and reconciling work of the eternal Son. Hence Paul's use of the phrase in or through Christ or in Him a whopping 12 times in these opening verses. The way in which these blessings are mediated to us is in and through the Messiah. The application of this work comes directly from the powerful acting of the Holy Spirit. Verses 11 and following read, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Our final salvation, our future inheritance, the eternal enjoyment of all of these spiritual blessings, it's secured by the sealing of the Spirit upon believers. It is the down payment, the guarantee that we will receive these blessings in full in the future. All that and only the first dozen verses of the letter. In the following paragraph, Paul goes on and he talks about uh, the fact that our faith in Christ, at least he he prays that our faith in Christ would uh, give us, uh, would would lead to, sorry, the the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the Father will will give to us. So Christ, the people who have faith in Christ, he prays that the Father would grant them the spirit of wisdom. Again, it's, it's Trinitarian. In chapter 2, this continues. We learn that Christ's work on the cross unites the church, and it grants them access to the Father in the Spirit. Verses, two, verses 16 through 18 in chapter 2. It's based on this unity that's found in Christ that we are being built together as, as God's dwelling in the Spirit. In chapter 3, Paul prays that God the Father would strengthen his people through the power of his Spirit in their inner being and through the presence of Christ in their hearts by faith. This is amazing when we think about 
all that God has done, that he has been orchestrating, as the beginning of the book says, from before the foundations of the earth, he's pre-purposed, he's set into motion this plan to redeem for himself a people. It's so incredible that Paul himself cannot help but break out in praise. Towards the end of chapter 3, after he's just written three incredibly dense chapters of mind-blowing and jaw-dropping awe-evoking theology as he explains the work of God for the church that's been accomplished in Christ through the Spirit. He can't even contain himself. His heart overflows into worship as he writes in verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, when was the last time that your theology brought you to your knees in worship? Paul's ecclesiology, his understanding of the church, has caused his heart to sing. So it's my prayer that our view of the church would be such that it leads us to worship, and that it leads us to, like Paul, overflow with thanksgiving and praise. I pray that that happens for us as we move throughout this series and we talk about the church. The second major thing that uh, Ephesians teaches us is that the church is the body and bride of Christ, that it's the household of God, and that it's the temple of the Spirit. This is bound up with Paul's use of metaphors and imagery throughout the book to describe the church, especially in relation to each person of the Trinity. So we'll look at these four key metaphors in particular, each one, again, tied to a member of the Trinity. The first He says the church is the body of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 22, in chapter 4, verse 15, and in chapter 5, verse 23, he articulates this. In chapter 1, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As his, as his body, the church functions as Christ's instruments in the world. The church displays his very presence on earth. When Paul refers to Jesus as the head within Ephesians, he stresses that Christ is supreme. He is the authority over his church. But also, he provides it with direction and with life. The church and Christ are a inseparable unity. The church simply cannot exist without its Lord, but neither can we conceive of Christ without his presence and dominion manifested throughout the community of saints on earth. It's how God in his wisdom has chosen to, to work. He manifests his presence throughout the community of saints. The second metaphor Paul uses is that the church is Christ's bride. 
This beautiful picture and familiar one for most of us is found in chapter 5, verses 23 and following. Paul instructs husbands on the way that they are to love their wives. He says that it is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, or by the washing of water, rather, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a touching and arresting metaphor. It conveys the incredible closeness, the relationality and intimacy that exists between God and his people. The Messiah loves his people, and his active concern is to cherish his body, cherish the church. It's to provide for her needs. As his bride, then, in response, the church belongs only to their Lord and to no other. The last two images that we'll see for the church are found in Ephesians 2. Verse 18 begins, for, the, uh, for through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So first, the household of God. By this, Paul articulates the new relationship and closeness that the church enjoys with God the Father. In 1.5, he describes this as adoption into sonship. In 5.2, the church is called the beloved children of God. The point is that this new relationship that the church enjoys with God is special. It's like that of a, a family, a new family, and it ultimately is the result of Christ's redeeming work on the cross. As verse 20 said, the house is built on the cornerstone, which is Christ himself. Finally, we see in this text that the church, the community of new covenant believers, is the new temple. We exist as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the Hebrew Scriptures, God decides to dwell among his people, first in Exodus, in the tabernacle, and then later in the kingdom of Israel, in the temple. But now, in the church, he no longer takes up residence in a tent or physical structure. Instead, Yahweh is directly present in the midst of his people. The third point that I want to make from Ephesians is that the church is a primary means by which God glorifies and makes himself known in the world. In his infinite 
wisdom, in his plan that was set into motion before the world began, God has designed a means for displaying his plan for the summation of all things in Christ. In chapter 1, Paul, talking about this plan, says that in all wisdom and insight, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This verse also tells us that we are the means of God's revelation of his will and wisdom. It's in the church, by the church, these things happen. We also are the expression of God's fullness, 123 and 3.19. God displays his grace and kindness in us, the church, and that is displayed to the spiritual powers and authorities in the world, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 says. And the well-known verse 2.10 about us being God's workmanship tells us that God has planned for us works and deeds that will testify to his glory and his majesty in the world. What Paul says in chapter 3 is incredible. He says, Though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, listen closely, so that through the church, the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says that through the church, God's wisdom is displayed. That is amazing. And I think that we don't often think of the church in this way. Not only does it display his wisdom, in doing so, God is glorified. He brings glory to his name through the church. This is because the church displays the glory of Christ, 112, and we're redeemed in him in order to do this, 114. We're recipients of the glory of God and power and majesty of God, says 118 and 19. And as I read earlier, but I'll read it again, Paul in chapter 3 in this doxology says something that is so profound. He writes, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As the church, we gain glory in Christ for God. And God is glorified in us. That, that is shocking and yet beautiful. Fourth point from Ephesians about the church is that it exists as a new, a new humanity with a new identity in Christ. God is redeeming the church and making us holy, hence the title saints or holy ones used throughout the book. 
in chapter 4, verse 20, Paul describes that Christ's disciples have learned Christ. He says, you've learned Christ, which means you have learned to take off the old man and be renewed in the spirit by putting on the new man, which is created according to the likeness of God the Father. This old man versus new man motif is prevalent throughout the entire book of Ephesians. Paul contrasts the old identity of now believers with who they are now in Christ. There are passages like the beginning of chapter 2, which display the wickedness and the sinfulness of humanity apart from God's grace. In a very depressing set of verses, Paul writes that you were once children of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. You were dead in your sins. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this old man has been replaced by the new. And this new man is really a new sort of human that is identified in Christ. Christ is the true and best human. He is humanity as it should have been. And in Christ, we participate in this new humanity as a part of the new community, the church that Christ calls us into. Ephesians 2 provides some particularly important details about this new humanity that Christ has created Paul writes about the division that exists between Jews and Gentiles. Formerly, these Gentiles, he says, were separated from Christ. They were alienated. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. But, again, another but where God's mercy explodes. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought Near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, the commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice again that Christ creates in himself one new man, a new human. He takes those who are at odds with one another, who are at odds not only with one another, but with God And he fixes this relationship vertically and horizontally, creating this new community through the cross. It puts to death the hostility that was brought into the world in Genesis 3. Ephesians shows us that God has brought all sorts of people together 
into one unified church, both Jew and Gentile, all sorts of tribes and tongues and nations. Jews and Gentiles alike are equal recipients of the promises of God. Chapter 3, verse 6. As the church, then, we are completely united in Christ. Chapter 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As this new community, we are charged with maintaining the unity that is found in God and which is bestowed upon us by God himself. Paul's letter to the Ephesians casts a profound vision for the Christian community. To repeat what we've seen this morning is that in the church, Christ is manifest with his people. The church is a creation of the triune God And as the body and bride of Christ, the household of God, the temple of the Spirit, God dwells among his people. In this new people that God has created, who have a new identity as a new humanity, God is glorified and makes himself known in the world. The universal church is the heavenly fellowship of all true believers throughout all times and in all places who are united in Christ. By definition, a Christian must be a member of the church universal. Being in Christ necessitates being a member of his body. In the words of a Christian leader from the third century named Cyprian, He cannot have God for his father, who is not the church for his mother. There is simply no such thing as a Christian who does not belong to the church universal. Understanding this biblical concept will set us up for next week and the weeks to come where we discuss the essence of individual congregations of believers located in particular times and particular places. As we will see next week, these timeless and universal realities of the church are actualized in expressions of that universal church by congregations of Christians in specific times and places. We've cast a great and exalted vision of the church. We've seen how glorious it is, but... On the other hand, it's actually not too difficult to understand why so many people today have trouble actually loving the church. It's one thing to read what Ephesians has to say about the church, but when we actually look around, what we see does not always seem to match up. We observe division among believers. We feel the pain of unmet needs We witness significant 
sinfulness within the body that we would only expect from outside, and yet it's in the midst of the church. So what do we do with such disappointment? What the church needs desperately is through the lens of Scripture to develop an evangelical imagination. What I mean by that is a perspective on reality, a way of viewing the world and understanding our existence that is ruled by the story of the gospel. This is what frees us to see and act in faith in accordance not with what the world says is true, but with what God's word says is true, with how things actually are. Because what the Bible says is true is reality, even if the world says no. So this sort of imagination is not about just wishing for things that have no chance of happening or things that are make-belief and wishing that they are real. No, what we mean by imagination here is actually seeing and trusting and viewing with our mind's eye what is real in Christ. This opens up to us the possibility of living along the grain of reality uh, in accordance with what God actually tells us is really the case in his son. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes, the church really is a holy nation made up of people from all tribes, classes, and countries, but it takes the faith summoned by the word and the power of the spirit to see it. The biblically disciplined imagination sees reality as it truly is, a divine creation in the midst of labor pains where the new in Christ struggles to come forth from the old in Adam. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18, what we need is for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. We need God to do this for us so that we see the church as it really is. We need our minds and our hearts to be reshaped from seeing the church as a fault-filled human institution to the bride of Christ, the temple of the Spirit, the people of God. Let me close with a poignant illustration from Van Hooser. Two stonemasons were hard at work. When asked what they were doing, the first said, I am cutting this stone in a perfectly square shape. The other answered, I am building a cathedral. Both answers are correct, but it takes imagination to see that you are building a cathedral, not simply making blocks of granite. Likewise, two pastors were hard at work. When asked what they were doing, the first said, I am planning programs, preparing sermons, and managing conflict. The other answered, I'm building a temple. It takes an imagination shaped by the Bible to see one's congregation as a living temple, with each member a living stone, 1 Peter 2.5. 
These stones are being worked, chiseled, fitted, polished in order to be joined together with Christ, the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. It takes a biblically formed, eschatological or future-oriented imagination to look at a sinner and see a saint. It takes a biblically formed, eschatological imagination to look at a sinner and see a saint. One practical way that we can begin to reshape our hearts and our minds towards a right view of the church is by confessing together that we believe in the holy, universal church. These words are from a line in the Apostles' Creed, a third or fourth century statement of the most foundational Christian beliefs. And so I ask that you would stand with me and recite this creed together as a body. In doing so, we add our confession of faith, our proclamation of these truths to that of the universal church. We add our voice to the collection of saints throughout the centuries who have proclaimed these very same things. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, We believe in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.